This week's episode is brought to you by Captain Fantastic, starring Viggo Mortensen. The New York Post raves that Captain Fantastic is one of the year's best movies. And the Washington Post says it's funny, wise, and deeply moving. Discover more about Captain Fantastic at BleakerStreetGills.com. Welcome to the Bart Fleming Podcast, in which you'll hear me, Peter Bart, talk about movies and the media with my friend Mike Fleming, and occasionally, by accident, we may actually agree with each other about something, but probably not this week. Mike, what's cooking? Well, it's been, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's good to see you, Peter, and, um, you know, we're coming off Thanksgiving, but um, in the past week or so, there's been some interesting developments on the on the fact-based film front and this is at a time when by my count there are about a dozen films in the oscar race that are either based on true stories or that have that are that are that are based on characters in true stories and um and they include jackie loving patriot's day birth of a nation hacksaw ridge naruda sully Hidden Figures, Lion, Rules Don't Apply, The Founder, and Gold. And sort of in that backdrop, you know, I'd had a story about Adam McKay committing to direct a movie about Dick Cheney, the former vice president that is going to be ready for Oscars 2017. And then at the same time, I had Sam Mendes uncommitting from a movie version of a film called Voyeur's Motel, in which the famous journalist uh, Gay Talese, um, he wrote a book about this um, peeping Tom motel owner in Colorado. And unbeknownst to Sam Mendes and Steven Spielberg, who's producing it at DreamWorks, he and um, Gay Talese and Gerald Foos, who's the motel owner, basically were making a documentary that covered really the exact same ground and in, and in a more direct probing way than a narrative film could have done that. And so that's that. So it looks like that million dollar payday has gone by the wayside. So explain that to me. Now, we had we originally Talese writing a book that's sort of a voyeur's book and sold it for a lot of money to Spielberg's company. Right. And then unbeknownst to the director, Sam Mendes, or I guess to Spielberg, that's a question. Talese also was helping to prepare a documentary about this whole voyeuristic, voyeuristic episode. Do I have it right? Well, you do. And according to Sam, he didn't, he didn't uh, neither he nor DreamWorks nor Spielberg knew about the documentary until they read about it in Deadline. And what happened was, you know, the documentary filmmakers had approached me and said, hey, this was after I'd written and broken the story about Voyeur's Motel. Um, they said, hey, we're working on the documentary as well. And so what happened was uh, the filmmakers, Sam Mendes got a first draft of the script and they, they went that far. But then they watched the documentary and they just, he and the screenwriter, according to Mendes, looked at each other and said, that's our movie. We're out. 
This is so, amazing. It's amazing. Um, it's not only kinky, but it's also weird that that there's to begin with. There's that much interest in in this process of spying on people having sex. I mean, don't you find this whole exercise somewhat creepy? Well. You could say that, but then you could also look at the first movie that Mendes and Steven Spielberg made together, American Beauty, and that was plenty creepy in its own right. And it was one of the one of the better movies I'd seen um, in a long time when it came out. No, it rolls over in your brain over and over again. It's the kind of movie that uh, that that sort of makes you think. But what I'm thinking is for Gay Talese. Now, years ago, he got a two and a half million dollar payday, movie payday for Thy Neighbor's Wife, which is his groundbreaking book uh, that was also about um, sex. And um, he he kept that money, or at least I think most of it, even though the studio in question, which was trying to make a statement by, never moved forward with the film. But it sounds like in this case, um, he's probably going to have to give it back. And just just for the record, Gay Talese, who's an old friend of mine, we, we worked together on the New York Times. He's best known for his extraordinary journalistic portraits of Frank Sinatra and some other stars. And he also wrote a brilliant book about the New York Times and its history and why it has sustained itself as such a great newspaper. So th- this is a whole different career, a substratum of Gay Talese's career. Well, yes, but it is also a very interesting wrinkle in these uh, in these fact based films, which, you know, which inevitably run into the questions of how closely you need to hew to truth when you're telling a narrative story. And, um, you know, but it looks like it looks like several of these movies are going to factor big time in this Oscar race. So I guess we'll, with these movies will keep coming. Well, I saw Deepwater Horizon over the, over the weekend, um, mindful that we're going to talk about this. And it, it was interesting to me because on the one hand, it, it, the good side of fact-based film is that you, you really feel like you're, you're part of the situation. You feel so, it's so up close and personal. And I was very impressed at how true to it was, the fact uh, Deep Water was to fact. This is Mark, Mark Wahlberg and Pete Berg's picture. What bothered me about it, Mike, was that it was like a procedural. It was so close to the facts that you got all the the dreary details of the science of oil drilling and platforms, and that there's much more than I wanted to know uh, about that and. And I thought it would have been a better movie also if, like Sully, they had cut to an investigation about it afterwards. So you can really, so, so the viewer could have had some more insight into who was responsible for this unbelievable mess. I think 11 people were killed. Well, it's very interesting because the same uh, star of that movie, Mark Wahlberg, and director Peter Berg are back with another uh, fact-based movie that I think is going to fare better in this Oscar race called Patriot's Day. And that one is about the Boston Marathon uh, bombing and the uh, and the apprehension of the terror suspects. And basically, that casts a really uh, flattering light on the people of Boston and how they rallied. 
to deal with this trauma and uh, and to address it proactively. And um, I know those guys were very disappointed that Deepwater Horizon did not do well at the box office. And the same distributor, Lionsgate, is involved, but CBS Films is 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 in the middle of this. And they and Lionsgate did very well on the movie Hell or High Water. And I have a feeling this is going to be the sleeper of Oscar season. It might be. Uh, I know both you and I were fans of Spotlight last year and uh, all the President's Men years ago, which were also um, diligently fact-based. And I think a, a case could be made for for the, the value of these pictures if they are done well and if they continue to focus on people, on the characters. To me, Jackie got lost. I, I had trouble with that movie at dealing with, of course, Jackie Kennedy and the couple of weeks after the assassination. But to me, she, Natalie Portman, wasn't really Jackie. She didn't have her presence and her power, I felt, even though the movie had its affecting moments. How did you see it? Well, I saw it a little bit differently. I've I've certainly have read and seen many things on JFK, but I have to admit I never really comp- contemplated what it must have been like for this woman to basically witness the violent death of her husband and basically have to come home covered in blood and then have a ticking clock on how long she had to gather up her children and her belongings and leave the White House as the next couple uh, basically came in and the country still had to be run. And um, and the, the, the notion that she kept it together enough to basically establish a, uh, a memory of her husband's regime, I, I thought that it was a pretty remarkable um, exercise in storytelling. Well, there was I, one- actually, I actually had a chat with the screenwriter, Noah, Noah Oppenheim, who also is the executive in charge of the Today Show. And we talked a little bit about the interesting balance between um, between basically cr- uh, creating a narrative and infusing it with enough facts to basically feel like you're on the right side of, uh, you know, of, um, uh, of truth. And it is a hard thing. It was a hard thing for him to wrestle with because he spends his whole day in hard news. Um, but I think they did a, a, a pretty exceptional job. And I think, and I, I, I will admit that it took me a moment to get used to Natalie Portman and her sort of, uh, breathy delivery of Jackie O, but, I have to say, it, it, it's kind of an exercise in female empowerment. For me, I was very impressed by it. Well, there are a couple of moments in it that resonated in the post-Donald Trump era, like when Jackie all of a sudden complains about the uh, the guys hanging around Jack Kennedy, hanging around her husband. She said there, there were sort of some, some unsavory characters in that group. You wonder what what uh, what she would have thought of in an era of the social media where everything is out there and blasted out there in public, and how, for that matter, how Jack Kennedy himself would have survived in in this glare of the social media today. I think Jackie would have had a lot more to complain about. Well, I think uh, JFK would have had a, a much harder time, obviously, or he would have had to temper his activities a great deal. But um, But Noah 
did say, I did ask him about that, and he said that really, and this is depicted in the movie, when Jackie took um, led a tour, a TV tour of the White House, that was really the first time that the public was allowed into the inner workings of the White House and got a chance to be part of that whole fascinating situation. And you contrast that now with Donald Trump basically tweeting his every thought at all hours of the night. And and this thing has really taken um, this has taken an exponential jump and we will see where it goes there. Clearly, there are no secrets anymore, as we've seen in this presidential campaign. But I think that um, I think that this movie will be interesting for people to watch particularly in light of what happened in the last presidential election and how open and ugly it all got. And this was really the first, uh, one of the first times that that a first family opened its doors to the public. But it certainly was in a much more candy-coated, adoring way. So we should admit that Mike and I are doing catch-up on a lot of these new movies by viewing what are known as screeners. And screeners are sent out to members of the Academy and to Guild voters, and it gives you a chance at home to run some of these current films. And one thing you notice, Mike, I'm sure you've been seeing this too, as you run these screeners back-to-back, they all open with uh, logos, like four, five, or six logos. And and the reason they do is that every picture is co-financed by a whole band of, of different entities today. That's the way movies are financed today. Like at, at the front of Neon De- Demon, uh, the logo parade includes Amazon, which has a sort of an elaborate cityscape that's probably too busy, followed by um, the flying red fragments of uh, Goldmont's logo and other logos from Wild Bunch, Bold Film, and lastly from Space Rocket. And, and similarly, if, if with with each each feature that you run, the the list of companies is amazing, and they all demand this these presentations at the front. Um, Protozoa, Fabula, Why Not Productions, Bliss Media, all of these entities that most of which even I have not heard of, and I doubt if you have, Mike. But the takeaway from these logos is interesting. Is number one that. What an international business it is. All these, many of them overseas entities are contributing to Hollywood pictures. But you wonder, to what extent are the voices of the filmmakers being compromised by all of these complicated partnerships, by the fact that on every picture you had to pass the hat through all of these companies here and overseas in order to get a go? I mean, what, what do you think? Do you, do you feel the way as you see this, these parade of logos? No, I have, well, I have a couple of thoughts. One, I think we, we need a logo, and hopefully it will involve, <laughs> I don't know, crumpled beer cans or something like that perhaps would be appropriate. But then also the thing that I always get a kick out of is that when you go to a festival and you're sitting there at a premiere and these logos come on, the room actually claps, and so you're, it, which just seems so preposterous. But really, all they're doing is acknowledging that you know everybody wants to basically plant their flag in something that might be a success. And look, these things don't happen by accident, and and money is a big part of it. So it, it has never. It sometimes I think it gets a little gratuitous, but it has, but it doesn't mean anything to me, um, actually. 
it, it is puzzling, though, for an outsider to, to sit and watch literally five minutes of what are essentially credits. And, and at the end of many pictures of the, of the logos is a, in Chinese characters, portraying the, the, so, there's so often a Chinese company that is also putting up a lot of the money. And, and they, most of them don't want to print their, their logos in English. They're printed in Chinese characters. And that's, a, I think, a sign of, of, their, of their influence in things. This week's episode is brought to you by Captain Fantastic for your consideration in all categories, including best costume design. Critics rave that costume designer Courtney Hoffman's creative designs create a spot-on character representation. Discover more about Captain Fantastic at BleakerStreetGuilds.com. Moving on to to another subject... um, I, uh, in, in watching these, these screeners, uh, the two pictures that impressed me were the work of Warren Beatty, age 79, and Paul Verhoeven, age 78. The fact that these, these two guys, at a point in their careers, you would think that they would uh, quietly be watching screeners rather than making films, that, that both of them have come in, have stepped in with pictures that are uh, establishing a lot of controversy. I mean, Beatty's is called Rules Don't Apply, which is something of a portrait of Howard Hughes, a man he's admired for decades. And Paul Verhoeven's picture is called L, with, with uh, Isabelle Hubert, which is a, uh, a really tough picture that opens with a scene about rape and revisits the rape scene three or four times during the course of the picture. It's a rough picture. And, but these, these two <clears throat> older guys, uh, in both cases, have brought it off. I mean, have you, have you seen them? Um, I haven't seen either. Um, <clears throat> but I know Verhoeven from from way back when, and he is just uh, one of the great characters. He's made some some terrific, provocative pictures, and I was just thinking that uh, if anyone wanted to step into the breach and do Voyeur's Motel, it ought to be <laughs> it ought to be Paul Verhoeven. That's right. Um, as for Warren Beatty, I met him for the first time at our Contenders event, and I had always heard that he was a very charming guy and he said to me he said he had been reading my stuff for so long that he felt and he, and he recounted this incident where he saw Paul McCartney at a party and they they locked eyes from across the room and they and they moved towards each other and they just basically gave them gave each other a big hug and then Warren pulls back and he says I don't think we've ever met before, have we? And he said, uh, Paul McCartney said, no, actually, I don't think we have. But but Paul did contribute a, uh, a, a, a song for Heaven Can Wait, which Warren said was just so good, it just threw the picture off and he didn't end up using it. But it was a very flattering moment for a journalist like myself to to feel like you know a guy like Warren Beatty just based on just based on having written about this stuff for so many years. I I, I can see why people feel that he is uh, is very charming. I, I I can't wait to see his movie because I know he's been working on it for what fifteen or twenty years, and he is. Look, he's one of those legendary guys. Well, the funny thing we were talking about fact base. Yeah. Uh, Warren is so fascinated with Howard Hughes for so long, and and admires him in, in all of his quirkiness and kinkiness. And both he and Hughes share um, a rather idiosyncratic 
fascination with young women. Remember, Hughes had, at any given time, 15 or 20 or 25 actresses under contract, and many of them holed up in different suites at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And, and of course, Warren, he didn't have the girls under contract, but he, they, they were sure in his uh, phone book, uh, which was an amazing phone book. But the rules don't apply um, stars Lily Collins and, and Alden Ehrenreich as, as two young lovers who um, come together because they both work for Hughes. And, of course, Hughes himself is this strange, shadowy character. So they never really have a prolonged conversation with him. But it, it, what fascinates me is that, again, it is so fact-based in a way that, that, uh, that it's almost over, the movie's almost overwhelmed with details about how it used. I mean, even to the point that Hughes, of course, was a multi-billionaire, uh, an aircraft manufacturer and a, a crazy guy. But one of his traits was that he would only eat TV dinners. So he'd be sitting with this girl, Lily Collins, and chatting with her, and all of a sudden he'd pull out an aluminum-wrapped TV dinner and start eating in front of her. And that's all he ate. But this kind of detail the, the, fills the picture, and you do have to stop and laugh at, at the way Warren has captured this idiosyncratic figure who has fascinated him all these years. Well, I don't know about the, um, the the sex part of it. It it seems to me like that is just sort of background subtext. I mean, Beatty's made some terrific movies, and the and the movie that I will have to measure this one against is the one that Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio did, The Aviator, which I just thought was. I, I have to say, I thought that movie was vastly underrated when it came out. I, I, I thought the, the, that whole race of, that Howard Hughes had in, in which to basically achieve his goals before his mind left him was just so heartbreaking. I, I thought that performance was, uh, I thought that performance was just devastating and, and, and Oscar worthy that year. Yeah. I'm being honest. And I, I agree. I hate to agree with you, but I, I thought that picture was a brilliant movie. And that, that the portrait of Hughes, it was far more sympathetic and interesting than in Rules Don't Apply. Nonetheless, I, I really liked Warren's picture. I, I thought Rules Don't Apply is a fascinating, and, and it's, it's an offbeat comedy. The, I did a picture with him years ago that I brought to him um, called The Parallax View, which was a dark thriller. And... Uh, and I must tell you, working with him, he's he's a pro. Uh, he will, however, if you get into an, an, a discussion with him about a scene in the movie, that discussion could easily last 20 minutes, half an hour, two hours. Warren, as even talking to you at that event, you saw his tendency to be somewhat prolix. Well, the, it is a little disconcerting that the movie came out and didn't do very well and um you know and it brings up another uh, thing that's part of this whole fact-based film discussion and that is how close do you stick to the facts i mean you know is the priority to tell a a gripping narrative story that takes creative liberties or is your job to basically um to hew very close to history i found it interesting earlier this year when gary ross wrote and directed the movie Free State of Jones about about this guy, Newton Knight. He actually annotated um, his screenplay online 
And I, when I saw the movie, I, I almost thought that perhaps he was a, a maybe a maybe a little too shackled to legitimate events. And you see some of these movies, like the movie that Pablo Lorraine did. He did two of them. Um, his foreign best foreign film nominee is Neruda, um, but that basically takes uh, that takes Neruda and it, he puts it in a, in a in a fictional storyline. And then, of course, you have Jackie, which is much closer to truth. But if you look at a movie like Loving, for instance, which Jeff Nichols directed and which is making some Oscar noise, now there he he did he basically hewed very closely to the actual events of the stories, and the result is is a pretty subtle drama. Now he could have done a Mississippi Burning and really ratcheted up the tension, and he chose not to. And I think maybe in that case it was a good idea. But it is this is this is hard to do, and sometimes maybe you're better off making a movie like Gold, you know, which Stephen Gagan directed and which stars Matthew McConaughey and Edgar Ramirez, and and which is one of the Weinstein Company's Oscar hopefuls. Now that's based on that's loosely based on a true story, but it's a crazy wild adventure yarn, and you don't even have to know about the old story in order to in order to be entertained. Well, you and I are both journalists by training, but I really like a picture. I tend to admire movies that stray a bit uh, from the facts, that that fictionalize them. Even the great movies of Costa Gavras, like Z, um, they were fact-based, but they also were filled with, with drama, and they did stray here and there. There were elements of fictionalizing. The, you mentioned The Free State of Jones, which is a very smart uh, uh, point to point out, because I thought in that case the director, who you and I both like, was and felt he was enslaved by the the real facts of 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 that of that uh, civil rights drama and actually, as you say, annotated the movie. I've never seen this where he'd actually stop stop a movie and there'd be specific points about um, uh, references to historic fact. It was more history than I wanted to know. The picture, as we should add, you and I were probably among the only people ever to see the free state of Jones. It was, it was a very beautifully made and ambitious disaster. Well, <clears throat> and this is, and this becomes very hard because when you get into the teeth of Oscar season, what you inevitably see are people coming out of the woodwork to debunk the factual accuracy of this, uh, of this fact-based movie and that fact-based movie. We saw it happen on Zero Dark Thirty. We saw it happen a little bit on Argo. We saw it happen with A Beautiful Mind. And again, because I was t speaking with Noah Oppenheim and, you know, Pablo Lorraine, who directed this movie, is from Chile. And um, and so it was an interesting it was an interesting um, meeting of the minds with the journalist meeting with this, uh, you know, meeting with this filmmaker who has an outside view of, of, of the whole Kennedy Camelot thing and basically them finding common ground um, where you can basically get off the track. And as he said, you know, you, you take some creative license to illuminate history um, as opposed to as opposed to saying you know coming up with things that are not true so Noah's Noah's priority was to make sure that everything that happened in the movie was somehow grounded by provable fact well and I admire that nonetheless let's go back to someone that I'm 
personally fond of, and that's Adam McKay. Now, there's a guy who is going to tackle a film, as you said, about Cheney. Uh, Now, what McKay brings to the table, as in The Big Short, is such a wit. He's got such a, a superb sense of humor, a wry way of looking at things, that that when he strays from fact, as he did now and then in The Big Short, um, he did it in a way that was vastly entertaining. So I'm fascinated to see, uh, he talked to you about this, he didn't has not talked to me about it, except in a very general way some weeks ago, that, that he, to tackle a, a biopic in a way of Cheney, who is, so we say, in the least uh, a controversial, if not blood-curdling figure, uh, I'm dying to see how he, how the Adam McKay wit um, surrounds this this movie. Well, I'm not I'm not as interested in the wit as I am with um, with how Adam kind of lacerates what Dick Cheney did with the whole office of of vice president. I mean, you know, you you everything that you read about Dick Cheney basically says that he is the most the most powerful and influential vice president in the history of the United States and and basically his behind the scenes influences on things like um, you know, enhanced interrogation, which of course is waterboarding and other things, uh, and and basically pushing intelligence to uh, to to war, you know, to basically justify shock and awe, the invasion of Iraq, and that intelligence proved to be uh, faulty is 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 very interesting and i i'm not sure that adam is going to be going for laughs here i think he i think he has points to make and i think he is uh much like jay roach you know it's funny when jay was making movies like austin powers and meet the parents every time i'd see him at a party he would tell me about his political aspirations and how he wanted to make all these political films and he's done some great ones at hbo and i just think that there are a few of these guys out there um, who basically um, want to put the comedy on the shelf and uh, and say things that are on their mind? And this is supposed to come out in Oscar season 2017, and it'll, so we'll be we'll be almost one year into the Donald Trump presidency, and I have a feeling it's there's going to be there's going to be some fireworks to be. It's going to be a very interesting time for that movie to be released. Well, look, Adam McKay, the guy, gave us Anchorman and Talladega Nights as well as the big short. He's not going to put his sense of humor in the background. Just because you don't tell a good joke, Mike, don't inflict that on on McKay. But folks, thanks for listening to the Bart Fleming podcast by Deadline. And be sure to head over to iTunes and click on to the subscribe button so you never miss a second of our random bantering. And thank you. Thank you.